I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Andrew Randall. Hey, Andrew, and welcome to the On Earth podcast. Uh, In this series, we aim to meet people who are at various stages in their career. Um, So what would you consider yourself to be? A teacher, a student, a researcher? Uh, What are you? Uh, Well, I work in the geological industry um, as an exploration geologist, um, but I do a lot of research as well and teaching. So I kind of straddle a few of those different categories for you. (laughs) You do wear a lot of hats, I will say that. what is an exploration geologist to you? So my role is to go out into the field and uh, look for metals. Um, so, you know, we if somebody needs, we want to find copper, if we want to find gold, it's my job to go out, find the right kind of areas to look for those metals and then explore for them and see if they're there in the first place. And then obviously build the profile of the site up to see if they're there in an economic volume as well. Hmm. That's a really a succinct way of explaining it. Uh, how did you get into this field? Did you always want to be an exploration geologist? Not very directly, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> I was the kid that was into dinosaurs. So, you know, like like every kid, um, I never, ever grew out of it. So uh, geology for me was always a big deal. Um, I was born uh, in the south coast of England and grew up on a little island called the Isle of Wight, which is locally known as Dinosaur Island, uh, because of all the dinosaur fossils that wash out on the beach. So, you know, from a young age, you know, from seven or eight years old, my granddad would take me walking along the beaches looking for fossils, and we'd go out all day and walk many, many, many miles in all the weather, you know, that you could imagine. So, you know, I even by the age of 10, I think I had like a massive fossil collection that was all catalogued and put in boxes and like really, you know, really uh, well put together. Um, so I, you know, that kind of formed how I, you know, the career that I wanted to go into and, and, and geology and specifically I wanted to get into paleontology. So I did my degree in, um, in geology in Wales um, and I specialized in biology and paleontology at the time as well, but I took a fairly broad based um, study uh, program so that I, I got different aspects of geology in there. I worked for a little while in some museums, including the Natural History Museum in London and the Senckenberg Institute in Frankfurt um, doing paleontology. And then it kind of all dried up. Um, paleontology is one of those aspirational careers, um, but it isn't something that necessarily pays particularly well and there's not a ton of jobs in it. Um, so I ended up dropping out of that um, well, not dropping out, forced out of it. You had to get another job. So I ended up in the financial industry for a while, which is a very weird sidestep um, back in the UK, but really wants to get back into geology. So uh, funnily enough, it was while I was on a holiday in Canada back in uh, 2003, I think it was now, I actually gate crashed a conference and uh, I would never recommend anybody to do that, but I totally did that. I gate crashed a conference, got in there, and started to make a nuisance of myself and talk to people um, and, you know, didn't 
think anything of it. it just you know thought it would be interesting to catch up with people went back to the uk and then a couple of years later got a phone call from one of the people that i'd spoken to saying hey we've got a contract in south america do you want to come out and work as a geotechnician for six weeks on a minerals project okay cool sounds like a good foot in the door so uh Two days later, I was on a plane to Barbados and then to Guyana um, and working in the jungles for six weeks. And that six weeks turned into a couple of years and then ended up emigrating to Canada. And here I am, what, 14 years later here now with my own career in, uh, in the industry. So very, very roundabout way of getting there. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way to get there, though. It gives you the best stories. Absolutely. And I always say that to students. I mean, if anybody that's listening to this, you know, I, I teach a lot of student courses, I do a lot of outreach and the, you, your career path is rarely a straight line. You know, everybody has this, this is what I want to do, but how you get there is different. I mean, I still do a lot of paleontology on the side as a hobby, but the thing that pays the bills is the mineral exploration. And that's okay. Andy, whenever I hear that uh, someone's done fieldwork in another country, I'm always curious, uh, how does it stack up against doing fieldwork here in BC? Or does it compare at all? Yeah, I mean, somewhere like somewhere like Guyana, I mean, you're, you're right down in the, uh, in the equator almost there. And, you know, you're dealing with very, very different conditions. So, you know, the jungle environment is hot and steamy. It was regularly over 90% humidity. It was generally over 30 degrees Celsius. And it would rain and thunderstorm twice a day and you know rain that would hurt when it hit you like so you know it was i always say it was a job from my 20s i don't know if i could go back and really put up with it as much now um you know we used to uh it's remote so you don't have in canada you will be able to go to a camp and you'd have internet and all those kind of things that you know we expect now um my time in guyana a lot of the time it was uh you know we had the central camp, but the areas were so big that we were working in that I would be camping out in the bush with my team. So it would be a hammock slung between two trees with a tarp over you and hoping that no animals would pick you off while you were there. And that's actually another big difference. You know, in, in Canada, I always joke with people, you can see the animals that are going to kill you. In a place like Guyana, you really can't. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it can be uh, pretty... It's an amazing experience. And I always say, you know, you should go and get as much experience as you can. I learned a lot. The geology is a lot different as well in places like that because of the tropical weathering. So in Canada, we have rock everywhere. Down there, we have, uh, it's just clay. So, you know, you have to learn a completely different version of geology. So fantastic skills to have, toughens you up and uh, really does give you a much more worldly view of the industry. <laughs> That's really great. Although I think I'd prefer the uh, Canadian animals, the ones that I can actually see coming for me. Now, with all that impressive field work, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Yeah, I mean, if I wasn't making discoveries, I wouldn't be very good at mineral exploration. Um, so, you know, on the mineral side of things, uh, you know, quite often will be dropped into a site. You'll have a hint that uh, there'll be something in the area because Canada's been explored for a long time. There's not a lot of, uh, all the low hanging fruits picked. So you are going out there and you know that there might be silver veins in the area, but you don't know how long they go for. Do they run, are they just a pod? Do they run for a couple of kilometers? What's the grade in there? So, you know, we've um, put together over the years, um, you know, gold discoveries in Yukon, 
Um, recently, uh, actually, we've started working on a copper property in southeastern British Columbia. And this is where the, the paleo and the sediments meets the minerals, um, because it's a sedimentary hosted copper system. And one of the things that we found on the site that was really, really cool was 1.4 billion year old raindrop impressions. And I totally noted out with my colleague Liam in the field. We, we just sat there for like half an hour just like looking at these things because, you know, it kind of dawns on you that this is a 30 second event that happened 1.4 billion years ago and somehow it's been preserved in this rock. And it was they were beautiful, just this cratering that we saw there um, from this raindrop impression. So, you know, you, you get you get the thrill of finding the rocks that have the copper in on that site and finding the other minerals and the pathfinders that go with it. But then something really, really cool, uh, like those raindrop impressions as well. So it's a very, like, I have a very kind of very holistic view to geology, you know, interested in all aspects of it. You've got the job you've got to do, but be interested in everything that you're doing. And how did you know they were 1.4 billion years old? Well, that's that's looking at the stratigraphy in the area. So, I mean, these are some of the oldest rocks that we have in uh, in British Columbia. And uh, the layer directly underneath it are basalts um, that are about 1.5 billion years old. And they've been able to date those, age date them using various uh, geochronolo geochronological methods. Um, and then the layers above it, there's actually some ash layers that they've done there. So they've been able to use, I think it was uranium they were using to break down and work out what the age layers. So it was actually really nicely constrained between this 1.5 billion year old lava field and this 1.38 billion year old um, ash layer. So yeah, really, really good. That's really cool. And it's amazing that you can tell with such specificity uh, the exact age. We're not always that lucky, but in this site we were, yeah. <laughs> what are you working on right now? I am working on quite a few things. So, um, you know, we've obviously living through a pandemic right now, which had quite an effect on our industry in the first part of last year. Um, but what tends to happen is when things are uncertain in the world, uh, people invest in gold. Um, banks invest in gold, so it drives the price up, which actually brings money into our industry. So from about June, July onwards last year, we were really busy. Um, and in British Columbia, we are classed as essential workers um, to, to go out because obviously with mining and exploration, um, sites need to be maintained, work needs to carry on. Um, but we had to do some, you know, dancing around COVID rules and making sure that we weren't taking anything into small communities and First Nations. So, you know, going on from what we started last year, um, there's money in the industry. So we're getting a lot of clients that want to drill uh, their projects. Um, so we've got some projects around the Merritt area that we'll be looking at drilling this year. Um, the big one that I'm really getting my teeth stuck into right now is up in Northern BC in the Tudagon region, which is about 400 kilometers to the Northwest of uh, Prince George. And uh, that is a site that had two mines on it that were operating up until 2012. And then basically the price of gold at that time wasn't economic for them to carry on. So the mines lapsed. Um, and so we're going up there to have a look and see if now that the gold price is a lot better that we know it's economic, but is there more gold in the ground? You know, they were going after these very, very high grade veins where there's a lot of gold in the veins. Whereas now the the uh, the economics suggest that we could go for a much lower grade and potentially wider footprint. So we're working for that client and trying to work out what the uh, 
what the bigger footprint is and whether or not this could become a mine in the near future. <laughs> I guess your financial background's really paying off here. Yeah, it's it's funny. And again, like there's no such thing as bad experience when it comes to careers. Um, you know, like I I did the paleontology thing that was fantastic. It was good. It made me realize I like geology. It made me able to read the story in the rocks as well and pay attention to those kind of things, and especially on the sediments front. Um, but getting into the financial services, I learned a lot about investments. Um, I actually used to deal with pension funds in the UK, so how people would move their money around and, and invest it in different places. It's a little bit different when it comes to investing into the gold market directly into companies, but the language is much the same, and understanding the cycles that we go through, the you know supply and demand especially, um, was really, really useful. And I actually worked in retail for a while as well. I was a store manager for uh, a company that's called B&Q in the UK, which is a, the same as Home Depot over here. We have the orange aprons and everything. Um, so I used to look after a store in Edinburgh uh, up in Scotland. I did that for a couple of years. And it was a great experience for me to manage like a large workforce, working out scheduling, um, supplies coming in and out, um, even think down to uh, customer relations, which really does have a bearing today when you're dealing with First Nations and communities. So yeah, all good experience. Great. And it seems to apply to everything you do since, frankly, you seem to be doing everything at all times. I like to keep busy. I, I think, I think you know, I just, I, I'm just so fascinated by geology and the different aspects of it. And so, um, you know, I have my consulting business, which is, which is called Hive. Um, that's been going for eight years now. We're a small team, there's seven of us, but we go out and do field work all over the place. Um, BC, Yukon, we've been to Ontario in the past, um, even down to South America for projects down there. Um, and then I also run a nonprofit called Below BC, which is how you and I have become familiar with each other because I've been in there raiding your rock collections at times. And We've created um, online museums of British uh, Columbian rock samples or on our interactive map there. So, you know, we, we go into a lot of um, repositories of museums and private collections and regional groups and photograph these things and get them online so that, first of all, so everybody can view them. Um, but we can also bring the story of that rock alive that maybe you wouldn't see in a, in a museum cabinet by itself. Um, and then I've taken the elements of those two together of Hive and Below BC, and I've recently started a new company called Aeonian Resources, uh, which is going to be an exploration company. Um, so like the clients I would go work for, I'm setting my own version up to work for myself, uh, mm -hmm. along with the other things. So we've been out uh, building up mineral properties across British Columbia. But what we're actually looking at is some of the sustainability aspects of the industry. Um, so we've been looking at decarbonization from the earliest stage of exploration. So we're monitoring all of our greenhouse gas emissions that we uh, that we emit through day-to-day -day work on these projects, which I don't think anybody else has done so far. Um, and then we roll that into, once we have that information, we can start looking at how we can mitigate that. And then the other aspect we're looking at as well as decolonization, uh, which is to do with uh, reconciliation with First Nations and the fact that the how we stake mineral tenure in British Columbia actually predates British Columbia becoming a colony. And so the legal system that supports the Mineral Titles Act doesn't really align with um, law in general. And so we have, there's still cases where 
First Nations rights are effectively being trampled on with access to land and things because of that. So we're trying to address some of that as well and making it a fair process um, where we can have that involvement in those discussions early on. So lots of different things, again, bringing it together and, and experimenting, see what happens. That really shows the value of multidisciplinary approach to geology. Uh, you've got all these issues that don't directly deal with the science of identifying a rock. Uh, and it also shows how so many of the, ge the geologists that I've spoken to are really concerned about issues like decolonization and their carbon footprint. It really takes to task the notion and the, and the stereotype of geologists being purely about maximum mineral extraction at the expense of everything else. Most geologists that I know, and especially like I'm 43, so, you know, I'm not a spring chicken, but I'm also not up there with the uh, the older guys. I, I'm what they call mid-career geologist. Um, and I work with a lot of people that are younger than I am. And, and a lot of us are getting into this industry because we like the outdoors. You know, we've we've grown up in mountains. We've grown up in coastlines looking for dinosaur fossils and it's kind of stuck with us and you know that's uh geology is a great way of, of being able to be paid to be up in the mountains and being some beautiful places so we're taking a lot of the ethics that we have in our day-to-day -day lives and applying that to our businesses as well and our, our careers and so you know i ultimately something like mining is destructive so you want to make sure that you are the, the site that you're working on is is very very you know is is absolutely you need to go in and do the work that you've got to do so there's a lot of technology that's being developed which has very low impact initially um there's a huge store of historical information that's out there so rather than staking something and just going out and putting roads in and drilling you know we we can go through historical information that really helps us to understand if this project's of merit before you even step foot on the ground um, but there's also lots of reclamation uh, technology that's coming along as well. So we're really getting a lot better at it. And I really do think that, you know, in the next 10 years, we, I, I honestly believe that the industry is going to become carbon neutral um, and have much lower impact. There's a lot of, um, you know, we focus on oil and gas industries to do that. But I think that the mining industry is actually really um really helping push that forward, maybe just a little bit more quietly in the background than, than other industries. That soon? In 10 years? I, I honestly believe so. I mean, you know, one of the things that is happening right now is uh, we saw Elon Musk, I can't remember, it was one day this week, he was talking about Battery Day and how he wants to start making 20 million Teslas a year. You know, that's great. That's fantastic. You know, we want battery cars, electric cars and everything. But when you look at the world supply of the metals, that are out there right now and the current production rates to be able to make those vehicles and those batteries, some of the most severely lacking. So things like copper, things like lithium, you know, there's not enough supply right now. So, you know, we, it, mining is gonna have to be the ones that come to rescue that. So, you know, we have to have social license to mine. That means, you know, you have to have buy-in from people to do that. And so, you know, you have to have all of these um, protections in place and you have to be a good citizen and a good corporate citizen. And so some of the easiest ways of doing that are to make sure that, you know, our, that our carbon footprint is low, that we're reclaiming the land, that we're doing community consultation, that we're offering those opportunities to the communities to participate as well. In British Columbia, especially, um, we do see from the cities, not so much from the smaller towns out there in British Columbia, but from the cities where people are just dead set against mining. Absolutely no mining whatsoever. It's terrible, it's bad for the environment. 
And that's the that's the image that we have to work against. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is how much they rely on everything. And, uh, you know, from money point of view, and uh, there's a great bumper sticker out there that I wouldn't have on my truck, but I believe in is, is uh, if it's not farmed, it's mined. Um, and it's true, you know, so if we want to continue having cell phones and growing our power grids and even medicines, like, you know, there's elements within that, you know, like the COVID response, we need metals, we need plastics for those kind of things. And so, you know, mining is, is becoming a big deal there as well. So there's a lot of investment into really caring for our environment, but trying to push forward to meet all these future demands at the same time. Well, knowing you as I do, I'm 100% confident that you'd only practice your profession in the most ethical way possible. Uh, I know the mobile displays you've done with uh, Below BC. Uh, we've actually exhibited uh, side by side at several conventions. And I'm always really impressed by uh, how you present your information. Uh, it's clear that you put a lot of thought and effort and care into them. And I don't doubt you take the same approach when you go out into the field for your, uh, for your day job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, speaking about going into the field, a lot of the people I've spoken to have mentioned that the craziest stuff happens while doing field work. Uh, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy good and crazy bad at times. It's very polarizing. You can be at opposite ends of the of the scale. You know, the 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 crazy good stuff is is the people that you work with and the places that you get to go. You know, there's like flying at very low altitude over a glacier with a bunch of people that you like uh, in a helicopter is one of the most thrilling things I think you can do. Like I did that up um, in the Stewart region up in Northern BC. And like, I, it's just one of those moments I'm going to take to the grave. Like it was, it was best roller coaster ride ever. It was fantastic. So, you know, we, we, we have elements like that. Then you get the flip side where you have, um, you know, another time when I was in the field and I got dropped off in a helicopter on a mountainside with four geologists and we were out. It's a beautiful day, stunning day up in Yukon. And, uh, you know, we're kind of doing our thing, walking around and then just see the skies just turn black. So we radio the helicopter and he's doing another pickup. And uh, this cloud comes in so quickly and we get hailstones the size of golf balls that start coming down on us. And there was literally, there was one big boulder and the rest of it was just like moose pastures. So we we huddled the four of us together by this boulder with a tarp over us. And the, the, the pilot's like, I can't get you guys are just gonna have to ride this out. So it was a miserable seven hours. I think it was roughly six or seven hours that we had to sit out there in the cold and the wet, waiting for this thunderstorm to finish coming through um, until we got picked up. And, you know, it was... I look back now and I'm smiling as I say about it because I just remember some of the conversations we had under the top and how much we hated each other at the end of it. But, <laughs> it, you know, it was uh, it definitely builds that camaraderie. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, South America as well. Like, I got chased by a Jaguar, which was not fun. Um, I'm not the most athletic person. I'm a, I'm a slow and steady person when it comes to the field. And, you know, so I was... Um, walking back to my ATV, which was on a trail, and this Jaguar appeared out of nowhere and started stalking me. And, you know, I mean, you could be the fastest runner in the world and that thing's going to outrun you anyway. So, but obviously I lived to tell the tale. I managed to go on my ATV and get out of there um, as quickly as I could. Um, And I also got knocked out by a thunderstorm um, in Guyana as well. One time with my crew, we were there was uh, myself and four Amerindians that were working with me and we had uh, three ATVs between us and we were riding along 
and the storm came through and it's quite often you know you'll just keep riding through the rain not a problem um and uh this one the thunderstorm was getting worse and worse and worse and so we we decided to stop we parked the atvs we went off into the jungle so that you're not the tallest thing around you know so just you get in the trees there you know normally over here they're like keep away from the trees down there it was get into the trees um we took all the metal off of us that we had so all of our radio antennas and our machetes and everything else we dumped it on the road and you lay face down with your hands over your heads on the ground while this thunderstorm was coming through because every lightning strike was just like it, it you could feel it go through your body and all I remember was this enormous bang. Everything went bright pink. And then that was it. And uh, I just pink and then black. And I remember coming round and the other four guys are with me laying on the ground as well. And we just got knocked out. This thunder, this lightning bolt had hit the tree like not more than 20 yards away from us. And the concussion wave that came out of it just knocked us out. And it was just, it was... Again, it was one of those incredible things to experience and to live through, but it makes you realize how risky it is at times. So, yeah. So definitely, you know, the, the good times definitely outweigh the bad times. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully you'll get a white streak in your beard someday. That's it. That's in my beard right now. That's it. Yeah, that's stress, though. That's something else. <laughs> well, I'm certainly glad that you survived. Um as you mentioned, the good times outweigh the bad times, and there certainly are uh, aspects of any job, uh, every job that one loves and things that one doesn't enjoy quite so much. Um, what's your favorite part about your job? Uh, there's so many. Like, I I love, I mean, you know, it's not all field work. Like, especially as you get, as you go through your career, you get more responsibilities, more office-based um, and corporate-based kind of stuff. But I really enjoy... Um, the people. So I really enjoy, especially people that are in the industry that maybe don't have the same depth of understanding. Um, I'm looking at CEOs here quite often. You know, they're great with money and raising money. They don't necessarily always understand the concepts of what's going on. And so it's really fun to work with people like that and have that um, that learning back and forth where you, you teach each other and you start to build a project. And when you actually start to see it come together is, is really rewarding um you know that that's that's one of my favorites but you touched on it earlier about below bc and us going out and talking to the public you know i've really missed that in the last year mm. um you know below bc got going in 2015 and then in 2017 we started to actually monitor how many people we were talking to so between two beginning of 2017 and the start of the pandemic we spoke to over 25,000 people face to face and had you know our table displays out with our rock specimens on there and just, you know, showing people what gold looks like in the ground. You know, people are used to seeing it in jewelry or they watch things like the, the Yukon gold shows and see it as nuggets, but they don't see what it looks like in veins. And copper is another one. You know, people don't associate copper with rocks, which as a geologist sounds really weird, but, you know, we've got to remember the public don't always think about where something comes from. I like steak. I don't like to think about the big brown-eyed cow in the field that's uh, that that it came from. So, uh, you know, like those those interactions. But kids, when they, you know, when you give them a dinosaur bone to hold or something like that, and they just the way they look up and they just like that that total look of amazement on their face. I keep thinking that must be what I was like as a kid with my granddad. And I hope that if I've inspired even just one of those kids to do what I do and have the life that I've had and have in this industry, then I've done a good thing. So that's my favorite stuff. 
<laughs> well, I know how inspiring you can be, so I'm sure it's more than just one kid. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a few adults as well. <laughs> now, Andy, my next question is a little more personal. Um, do you identify as being a member of any underrepresented community? And if so, do you feel like uh, that's impacted your work or how you've been treated by the geological field? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, so I'm gay um, and, you know, I, married to a guy that was a field biologist and I've worked out in the field as well. So I, you know, I've definitely had some stories with that. I, I tend not to walk into a camp and announce, hey, my name's Andy and I'm gay. You know, it's it's something that's part of me, but it's not necessarily all of me. Um, and I do find that sometimes if you uh, put that out there straight away, then that's all that people focus on. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've had, um, I've had some awkward moments for sure. A lot of it, I have a thick skin. British sense of humor, I can brush it off, but it's not something that maybe everybody would brush off. So, you know, we have to be aware of that, you know, where people have said, are you okay lifting that core box? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. You know, and it's that, um, it, it's it's like a feminization that you go through, but then that's also unfair to women. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a trickle down. These people that are saying these things assume that because you're gay, you can't do stuff because you're like a woman, but then they're also saying that, women can't do these things as well. So, I, you know, I, I stand up for that. I fight back on that stuff, you know, and tell them that's not appropriate. Um, but I've also had other times as well, you know, ones that really stick with me, you know, and David, my husband said this the other day, you know, in, in stuff that he's faced in the field. And, um, you know, the way to judge it is, is it something you laughed off and it was fine? Or is it something that you took home with you at the end of the day? Mm. And, you know, stuff that I've taken home with me at the end of the day is the stuff that really does affect you in the long term and makes you question how you want to be in the industry should you be in the industry etc so you know the prime example of that was about 10 years ago I was in a camp and um, one of the drilling managers came up to me and said um, asked me if I would shower use the shower rooms at a different time because he didn't want the rest of the team to feel un uncomfortable mm -hmm. and you know I like a <laughs> kind of agreed at the time I was like oh yeah cool no worries would hate that but it really annoyed me and even when I talk about it now I'm like that's actually you know it, did they think I was predatory did they think that I'm automatically attracted to all of them are they also insecure in their own sexuality that you know I mean you know I've I've, I've thrown it back to a few people now and said so you don't want me to treat you like you're treating the women here basically is what you're saying that normally shuts them up, but um, you know, it's uh, it's a tough one. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm pretty lucky that I've been able to weather a lot of this um, and, you know, but it's only really been in the last <laughs> weeks that I've really talked openly about this stuff. Uh, you know, this actually came out in a story with the Roundup conference uh, last week on when I was on a diversity panel. So it's it's very timely, um, you know, that I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm far along enough in my career right now to kind of weather this. And I've hopefully established myself enough as an exploration geologist that can set up and run companies and do these, um, you know, philanthropic things like below BC that, you know, the fact that my sexuality and my gender isn't an issue anymore, but I know for some people it will be. Um, and I know there'll be a few people out there that will reel in shock when they hear it, but, um, that's their loss at the end of the day. And I think that's something, something we see. And, you know, my argument to people that do have an issue with it um, or that are looking to diversify is 
as a population outside of geology, we're a massively diverse industry, you know, population. There's men, there's women, there's every spectrum on the rainbow out there. You know, there's, uh, you've got all the different elements of queer society, uh, men, uh, you know, mothers, all those things, like all the things that get discriminated against. Uh, why shouldn't we have that representation within our industry as well? You know, it should be that that, you know, if there's 10% of people out in the wider population, there should be 10% of people within the industry itself. So, yeah, it's uh, it's something um, we are seeing change on, um, especially with women in mining and support there. I think the gay stuff is probably a little bit behind. It's very behind right now. There's not a lot of representation and like something I'd like to see change. That's a really beautiful argument for diversity and a really uh, clear um, explanation for why it's needed. Um, it's different than what I've seen in the university environment, uh, but I've also heard that the field and the university can be very different uh, environments. I particularly enjoyed how you showed the connection between sexuality and gender. I hadn't thought of that uh, connection in that way before. Thanks for sharing, Andy. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> now, my final question today is about COVID. Um, have you been able to work through the shutdown? Uh, has it affected you at all? Um, so, I mean, from an office point of view, it didn't really affect us too much. Like when back in March, um, you know, when everything was in a shambles in Canada, we didn't know what was going on. I ended up laying off my entire team, which was really upsetting because we just didn't know what was going on. There was no money coming in. Um, you know, the gold markets hadn't really kicked up at that point. People weren't sure what it meant for travel and all those kind of things. So it was really unstable. So, um, you know, I had very, it was one of the hardest days of my career, but I had to let everybody go so that they could go and sign up to all the, the systems that the government had put in place and the support there. Um, but within a month, I had everybody back um, because we had enough and it wasn't enough. It was enough to kind of keep people ticking over, you know, and whatever, if I don't pay myself, as long as everybody else is okay, that's fine. And that's, that's kind of what I was doing for a little bit as well was making sure that, you know, I wanted my team to be intact because I felt like it was going to come back for us in the summer, mm -hmm. um, you know, with modifications, but it would be back. So, you know, we, we, we went through the ringer a little bit at the beginning of last year and then, as I say, June, July onwards, it really kicked off and we were actually having to turn contracts down um, at different points because people were wanting to go out and do work. So, I mean, the big changes for us were, you know, we wrote a COVID plan um, for exploration that actually ended up being adopted by um, the Association for Mineral Exploration as well. So it ended up being kind of rolled out through as a, as a basis for a lot of different sites out there. Um, and, uh, you know, it was... It was things like, you know, sanitizing door handles on trucks and making sure that you had one person in the front, one person in the back to separate as much as possible. You know, things that you wouldn't normally do. Mm -hmm. um, even things like hotel rooms, motel rooms, everybody got their own room rather than sharing. Um, so, you know, the, the flip side of that, we'd see costs go up a lot because we were having to do extra hotels. We were having to do extra trucks to accommodate everybody. Um, and that was actually a problem for availability then because everybody was doing the same thing. So if you go somewhere like Merritt, which is a real hotspot for activity in the summer for exploration, um, and there's only really, I don't know, there's probably 200 motel rooms in all of Merritt, um, but you've got drill crews in there and you've got exploration crews and you've got all these different companies. It was hard. It was really, really hard to actually get the, um, the accommodation. So even though we could go and work, 
we had to be very, very careful and we had to plan, logistically plan way ahead um, and really bend with, um, you know, with the regulations and the restrictions and really keep up with what Dr. Bonnie Henry was telling us and making sure that we got through it. And we did, you know, nobody got sick, um, which was fantastic. Um, you know, we had probably one of our best summers ever in the end of it after all of that. Um, we were busy all the way through and now we've cultivated a whole series of new clients from last year that we're bringing over into this year as well. And a lot of that is because of the trust, and the professionalism that we had last year and the success, um, you know, and just wanting to carry on. So it, it definitely was a challenge, um, but I feel very, very lucky with how it turned out for us because I know uh, there's a lot of people that this isn't working out for. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, I count my blessings. Well, certainly blessings, but also uh, well-earned praise. You certainly put in a, a lot of hard work um, developing that plan, which was eventually adopted province-wide by the Association of Mineral Explorers. I'm sure your employees must really appreciate how much you uh, look after them and their health, health, safety, and well-being. Yeah, well, and safety is always paramount. Like, you know, we, everybody has to come back alive or, you know, and healthy. So it doesn't, you know, it's just another aspect of the safety plan that we have to have in place. Um, so, you know, it was, it took effort to put it together, but it was well worth it in the end, you know, and it's a, it's a good guideline. So absolutely. Well, Andy, uh, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, it's always a pleasure to sit down and chat with you. Is there anything you want to say before I let you go? No, just I, thank you for having me here today. And like I say, I really hope that, um, you know, your listeners and students and lecturers and everything will uh, continue to be as energized by geology as I have been and have fun with their careers. And, you know, I'm always out there at different events and always available. So if people want to reach out to me, they are more than welcome to. And I really hope I can come back to the museum at some point soon because I, I've got Yukon and Manitoba rocks I need to photograph. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't wait to get you back in there as well. Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.